show on the internet, and you're listening to it. Hello. <laughs> Hello there. And our neighbor's dog is barking because yeah. we started talking. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah. What What do you guys have to talk about this week? <laughs> um, in our very tightly agendaed uh, podcast that we have here, I, well, I was going to ask very you, focused. I was uh, going to ask that of us before we started recording, but we just pressed the recording. Started, yeah, because that's that's how you do it. Uh, we got into a, a rant about Muppets. You catch the listeners There's, by surprise yeah. by just start pressing record. You, yeah, there's yeah. a lot that's going on. You, that's how you make a show. You guys are surprised, right? Yep. I'm right. surprised that they started listening to this because <laughs> it goes out live as soon as I press record. That's how that works. Editing yeah. is a long and expensive process, and none of us have time for it, except for Alex. But eh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. who does it? And he does it, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I actually, I actually, there are some things that we need to talk about. Okay. Um, some news. Okay. Some some news, some news that intersects <laughs> one of <laughs> some of our two fresh off the presses. There's news, apparently. Because we still have presses. Yep. The two things that we're basically are, are, are only two horses. Like, this is our two-horse town. Mm-hmm. Nerd stuff and socialism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they intersect. horses. They intersect on, on... Well, we beat them to death. But, um, but, Not a social... <laughs> Poor old Soshi. Okay. Uh, How are they? Telltale. Oh, yes. I had a feeling that you would want to talk about this. Yeah. So so you've heard of this. You've heard of this? I have no idea what you're talking about. All right. Well, we watched the Jimquisition on it the other day, but at least doesn't pay attention to Jimquisition. I I don't. (laughs) So live services. So Telltale is a studio, game studio, uh, that's made some of uh, the games you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, The Walking Dead. Um... Sam and Max. Yeah. Cool game for attractive people. Poker Night. Yeah. The Minecraft. The Minecraft story mode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They've, the mighty have fallen. Um, yeah. But um, but recently, within the past couple of days, uh, they have announced that they're going to close down. Yeah. They are going bankrupt and shutting oh, things down. In, in the middle of a season? Is that what I heard? So, like, yeah, they're they're doing a season of The Walking Dead. They're doing a, another game for Netflix. And, like, like, they had been on board. They were making a Stranger Things game. What? Yeah. Okay, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, and so in the midst of doing all this, the higher-ups ran out of money. I don't know what happened. <laughs> And they they decided they just woke up from a bender all night, <laughs> one night and then they realized oh shit our coffers are empty. <laughs> uh, we blew it all on these hook- hookers and coke. Or making Minecraft story mode. Oh god. Oh, um, god. But regardless, they they laid off like couple hundred people immediately side Shit. note have you watched the let's plays of the uh let's of the uh minecraft story mode i tried <laughs> <laughs> have you have you watched the uh, the best friends one uh i don't know whose it was okay. but because the best friends one is hilarious because don't they stopped they, they literally stopped playing it <laughs> and they just let the video play out and then never pressed any buttons and it still just kept going. Oh no. And going. And going. And like they never got a fail state. They never got a well, game failures over. Failures are, well, game overs are a failure. Failure of the game, the game design. designer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you need to say that in a terrible, like, French Canadian <laughs> accent. Um, but 
yeah, so they just like set it down, set the controller down and just let it play and just talked about other random shit. And then every once in a while, there'd be like one thing where it's like, oh, you got to pull the trigger or else the story can't advance. And they would pick up the controller and pull the trigger <laughs> and then just go back to whatever it was they were talking about before. It's interesting to say the least. Yeah. So interesting and in how uninteresting it is. Right. Well, regardless of the quality of the games that came out in their later years, yeah. uh, Telltale laid off a bunch of people essentially without warning. They have like twelve, like 25 people left on staff so that they can finish making, uh, pay off the promises to their investors. Whatever that whatever means. Whatever that means. Uh, and they didn't give any notice. They didn't give any severance pay. They didn't give Shit. anything like that to the people that had been working at their yeah. you know, company for so long. And now uh, there's class action lawsuits uh, against them and movements to unionize uh, gaming industries yeah. have been called Good. up. So, yeah. Yay, that's that's a thing that's been long in the making. It's like long time coming, but it sucks that it takes something like this to get that going, but I mean, it usually does. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, I've been, I've been hearing a little bit about this. I haven't followed it terribly closely. I was a big fan of, of, uh, Telltale back in the day. Um, even before I never, I never played Walking Dead, but they basically, they revive, revitalized a lot of my favorite, um, nineties LucasArts properties. So they did the Sam and Max series. They did, um, uh, a new like Monkey Island game. They did a Back to the Future game. They did a um, which is not Lucas Arts, but still they did a Back to the Future game. They did a um, oh yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, that one was good. They did a Jurassic Park game and the Poker Night of the Inventory games, which I loved. And I played all of those. And then like I never like I I've heard Walking Dead is supposed to be really good. I've never played it. I watched the uh, Let's Friends, the, the Let's Friends, Let's the, Friends, the, the the best friends the playthrough. Friends. Yeah, <laughs> those guys. Oh the my game, god, we should become game the Game boys. Friends, the Game Buddies, the Game Friends. <laughs> oh, the best Game Friends, the, the best Game Friends. No, I like I like I like just Game Friends. It's cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> the Game Friends. You gotta drop the thought. <laughs> Uh, and and like compress the two. It's like a German word. It's game friend. Yeah. <laughs> There's like an umlaut yeah, yeah, yeah. over the a, even though I don't think a's get umlauts. Uh, I mean they're not supposed to, but sometimes they do. Yeah. Loops. <laughs> Money loops, brother. Um, anyway. But yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I feel really terrible because like the qualities of their games have definitely gone down, and I definitely like I would try every once in a while. I think the the. Jurassic Park one was the last one I was really excited about playing. And it was interesting because it was different from some of their others, but it, I wasn't, like, as invested in it as I was in the Sam and Max games and, like, all the other ones. Probably because all of the other ones I had played up to that point were, like, episodic. Mm -hmm. And I could play it in, like, an hour mm. and then uninstall it and then install the next episode and just play it through it that way. So it was, like, binge, binge video gaming, I guess. Um... But yeah, no, I had heard bad things about the quality recently. Other than, I mean, I, I watched the, I tried watching the the best friends let's play of the, of the game of the story mode for Minecraft, and it was just, it was just excruciating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but and I was sure it was even worse for them because that's like one of the few games where they've just kind of stopped. Yeah, yeah. they just like never finished it. 
They finished Omicron, for God's sake. Yeah, they, <laughs> they did. They had to make that shit work. And they just, yeah. And they didn't for this. But it's still sad, like, like I said, for the people who are working there. Um, and not really for anybody else. But for the people <laughs> who are working there, it's it's pretty tragic. We're going to pour one out for you guys. Yeah. Um, I hope you find, I hope you manage to found your own video game studio with no bosses, like the people who made Dead Cells. And just go with that, because that form your own collective. Yeah. Be your own video game. Be, be the video game boy. <laughs> <laughs> be the one who wins. Be the game friend. <laughs> We're doing this. We're making this yes. happen. Game friends. Oh my god! Yeah. I have to figure out how to do video capture. Well, we have a, a PS4 but... Pro, so yeah. we're already halfway there. <laughs> the other half is like learning how to use it. Well, I know how <laughs> to use that. I don't know how to put it. All like... right, we're like three quarters of the way there, guys. <laughs> okay. We can record um, things off of our computer. Yeah, that's true. I just don't know how. I know how. Okay. Well, then, well there we go. Cool. All right. I'm well, Alex. I know how to use technology. In fact, you already have it installed on your no, computer. No, I know that. I just don't know. I don't know how it works. I I've never actually that. tried to use it for. Well, you I mean, point like, Alex at it until okay. it works. That's how it works. Fine. Yay! Fine. Fine. Okay. I like that. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about it? Because I feel like I've said everything that I need to say about it. Like, um, it sucks because because I, I, I literally know nothing other than it was like a really shitty way of going about it. Yeah, I mean. There have been calls for, there's a group call, I think it's, I'm trying to get it up on my tablet while you guys are talking, um, but I think it's a group called Game Workers Unite, mm -hmm. uh, which is trying to, to get together on, um, and get something going with unions and, and game, game devs, um, but, no internet, what? No, um, but anyway, yeah, other than that, I don't really know. The latest news is that the class action lawsuit has been filed. Uh, against Telltale, and we'll have to see what happens to that because it's one day old news. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's especially it'll be interesting to find out like what comes of that because uh, you know class action lawsuit against a company that supposedly has no money. We'll see how that goes. Um, I wish them the best, and by them I mean the people who got laid off for no reason. Yeah. Fuck well, the capitalists. Uh, again, Fuck the bosses. Dead Cells. Go support Dead Cells. Uh, the produ the people who made that game basically are a uh, anarcho-syndicalist company that just has no bosses. Everyone gets paid the same amount. Um, what is this? Uh, Dead Cells. It was a... How have I never heard of this? What oh. is this? Um, it was, it's a side-scroller, kind of uh, Souls-like, kind of Castlevania-like, um, but it was made by, I think, a French developer? Uh, let, me, let me look this up. Um, Dead Cells Company. Uh, See, people people t sometimes ask me. It's like, what is what, if if you want the revolution? How about these video games? Who's yeah. gonna make your video games? The, like people like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, people <laughs> like this. Okay, so this is from Kotaku. The comp the uh, the article is called uh, "Game Studios with No Bosses." No game studio with no bosses pays everyone the same. The game industry is not exactly known for valuing workers. Big studios are rife with soul-destroying crunch and end-of-project layoffs. French studio Motion Twin, developer of the Castlevania-inspired roguelike Dead Cells, is trying something different. Workers own and manage the company. There is no boss. Motion Twin describes itself as an anarcho-syndical anarcho workers cooperative. What this means in practical terms is that all of its 11 workers are, in theory, equal. Same pay, same say. Um... We actually just use a super basic formula. If a project finds success, people are basically paid more in bonuses, and everyone is paid the absolute same way. 
said longtime Motion Twin game designer Sebastian Bernard in an email. The devs and the artists are paid the same amount for money, and people like me, who have been here for 17 years, are paid the same amount as people who were recruited last year. Uh, it seems to be working. Motion Twin has been in business for nearly two decades, and the studio's most recent game, Dead Cells, has sold more than 700,000 units on PC alone, even before leaving early access. Motion Twin's pay and ownership system, Bernard says, constitutes a direct challenge, not just to the exploitative practices you see at a lot of other companies, but also to the tired uh, old world corporate structure in general. Um, so yeah, that's cool. I, that, there's a, there's a little bit more to it, but I don't have. We don't really have time. I don't think to go. Just into this look part. it up yourselves, guys. You got internet's in yeah. front of you. But yeah, that's that's how that's how I want to see things run. Yeah. 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 And you'll when things like this exist, you will stop seeing like paywalls in video games for like skins and. Video games as live services. Triple A. Loot boxes. I think that's why I don't. Uh, I think that's like I think you hit the nail on the head as to why I don't pay attention to uh, to to uh, Jim Sterling. Yeah, Jim. Sterling. You should because he's got a lot of interesting shit to say. Even if he does sometimes, he does stupid voices for things in the video game industry that are stupid. And yeah. there's a lot of things in the video game industry that are stupid, so he yeah. makes that voice a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, Dead Cells, go buy it. Um, it's on everything. It's on Switch. It's on PC. So it's on the only things that matters right now. <laughs> um, I think it's on PlayStation also, but I'm not sure. They also have other games too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Dead Cells is the most recent, and it's been getting a lot of buzz. And you know, if you're if you care about video games, if you care about workers, this is a really good video game that treats its workers right, and isn't EA and who's gonna shutter every studio. Man, I'm gonna miss Bioware when Bioware goes out of business after um, what's its fuck comes out. What's its fuck? The, the new the new Bioware game, that's not a Bioware game. That's just EA's excuse for closing Bioware down. Um, the Jetpack one, the one that's the one that's not Mass Effect. Um, oh my god. <laughs> Are you what what are you literally it's talking like about? It's like with with every word and phrase you say, I have um, less of an idea of what you're oh talking God. about. Oh uh, God, I can't believe I don't remember. I I can believe I don't remember what it's called <laughs> because it's like the most generic looking game ever made. But um, is it a puzzle game? No, it's like a, it's an EA game. It's a shooter. Oh, okay. okay. Um, let me let me look it up. Okay. Now it's driving me crazy. <laughs> um, uh, Bioware. Uh, but the, when I put in Bioware into Google, the first autofill is Bioware is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Anthem. Anthem. That's the name of the uh, game. Okay. That, that does sound super generic. Yeah. And it's like this game where it's like you're a guy in a power suit and you fly around and you shoot guns. Wow. Yep. Is, didn't they already make that game? They did. <laughs> That's kind of my point is that this game is coming out. And it's going to be the last thing that Bioware ever produces because EA pumps all this, mo this money into these terrible business ideas and these games that nobody wants. And then when they flop horribly, they shutter the company. Mm. And that's how they make money is by purchasing companies, like literally purchasing their competition, making them produce shitty products, and then closing them when they underperform. Like, that's capitalism. <laughs> And then what do they release that makes the money? 
Uh, I, I'm pretty sure they get. Are they still making the Madden games? I think they're the ones that make the Madden game. Yeah. They they have like a monopoly on some sport game. Uh, I think it's Madden. It might also be the FIFA titles. Mm, all the sports stuff. But yeah, but there's like sports all, ball games. That's how all of those big like monolithic companies like EA and Activision. It's a game that you gotta buy every year because otherwise yes. the teams are yeah. gonna have the wrong uniforms. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. This could just be a patch where we put in the new rosters, or maybe like if you really wanted to charge money for it. Maybe like a five to ten dollar update, but no, we're gonna release an entirely new game every single year for sixty dollars, and every year it's gonna get worse and worse. But people are still gonna buy it because it's the new Madden, and that's how they make money. And then meanwhile, they buy companies like Bioware, who have made some of the best like PC and console RPGs ever, and then just make them produce shit and then close them. So. Who is Madden again? Because it's a name <laughs> of a, a person. Man. He's a football man. He's a football man? He's a football man. Uh, he's the guy, he's like the old dude with the white hair who used to be a comment. I don't even know if he's a commentator on the NFL anymore. <laughs> but he was the guy where it was like, well, you see, you got, the, you got the guy here and he's got the ball there, but these guys are trying to stop him. But he gets past him into the end zone and boom, that's a touchdown. Like that, that's, that was John Madden. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wow. Yep. That was it sounds that was some nerd describes a football game. <laughs> it sounds No, that's literally see the joke is like, and people who actually watch watch football will get that because that's literally how John Madden would commentate. Is he would just describe the things that are happening in the game. It wow. sounds ten times more exciting in Spanish, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, it, it does, is. it does. Um, <laughs> or just or just if you're if you're watching a sport that England cares about, if you're in a pub. Because you've got a whole bunch of like drunk Englishmen caring about it, throwing throwing pint glasses at the Pretty TV. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, and I know this is like visual content for our audio podcast, but um, <laughs> but uh, have you did you guys see the the meme where it was like the difference between football fans and football fans? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> football. Um, President, Mr. President, please make all the black football men stand up for the flag. Uh, football fans and it was like just huge banner that says fuck the police <laughs> I was like yes and there's like fire in the background yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why soccer is better than American football <laughs> that alone by itself is the main reason um, that and you know you're where you're gonna be in three hours after if you sit down to watch a soccer game uh, in the street afterwards yeah <laughs> or at least not watching the same game which is all I care about okay um I uh, we kind of got off on a tangent there. You don't say. Yeah. You don't say. I had a thing. some nerds talk about sports ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we try so hard. <laughs> I don't know. We gotta We're get. Very gotta reach, You gotta reach that sports demographic. It's gonna. Yeah. Become a sports cast. Yeah. So this is this is Sports Center, the podcast written by Aaron Sorkin. You can't tell, but we're currently walking right now. Very nice. <laughs> and it provides a sense of dynamism to the scene. <laughs> Actually, I know somebody um, who uses the verb sor- uh, u- uses Sorkin as a verb. That person sounds terrible. Do He's actually like a really cool person. Okay. I don't think he listens to the podcast. I don't know. Maybe. I stand by what I said then. <laughs> Unless you're listening, in which case, hey. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's like, you know, I can talk to you, but you got a Sorkin it. And I was like, I like that. Does that make me a terrible person now? <laughs> huh? It's like the one thorough line between all of his shows. Oh my god, they all take place in the same universe. <laughs> guys, 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 guys. The Sorkinverse. The Sorkinverse. 
So who's, it's, uh, who's it's West Wing. He's the guy who made West Wing. Oh, he like wrote the social newsroom. network, uh, the newsroom. So all the things I haven't seen. He's, like, literally, uh, like, America's only famous screenwriter. Okay. <laughs> like, and that's, like, the only thing he does is screenwrite. Yeah. Um, he doesn't do anything else. He wrote yeah. manga that one time. Yeah. He wrote yeah. a manga? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it was a joke in uh, uh, the Chapo Trap House. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, See, a lot, you know, I'm sorry. I, I don't even need to be here. You guys are way over <laughs> my head. All right, well, um, right, let's let's move on to something else. Because I actually did have something that I wanted to talk about. All right. And this could either be a deep dive into something, or it could be me just talking to myself for five minutes, and then you guys were like, okay, and we'll yeah. just move on. So All right. Okay. We'll see how this goes. Um, but the, the it, this was a thought that I, that I had while I was on my afternoon run uh, after work today. Um, is that... I mean, this is this is going to be my doctoral thesis. Uh, it's a working title right now, but essentially it's going to be uh, conservatives can't art good. Can't art, <laughs> art good? Art good, yes. Okay. All right. Basically, this the, could be a deep dive. The, the All just, right. The Go gist on. of my thesis. Does this have something to do with uh, political comics? No, um, not necessarily. Um, but we can talk about political comics if you want. But oh, okay. I'm, I'm thinking specifically about like like major art forms. So like, let, let me let me define my terms. So, um, first of all, when I'm talking about conservatives, I'm not talking about, like, anyone on the right. Because, obviously, like, right off the bat, there are a lot of people who are on the right who you can kind of, like, use to discount this. Like, right off the bat, like, Lenny Riefenstahl kind of completely disproves this. Like, regardless of politics, like, you can't undersell the amount, like, and we've talked about this before, like, the importance of, like, what she contributed in terms of, like, like camera work. Okay. Um... And, like, D.W. Griffith and things like that. Like, so it's not necessarily people on the right. When I say conservatives, I'm talking specifically about the, um, the, the political mindset that kind of came about as a reaction to, like, the French Revolution and basically everything since then, which is essentially the political mindset that the, the structures of power as they exist now are fine and we don't need to fix them. Okay? This is fine. This is fine. It's fine. Okay? So that's that's who I'm talking about when I'm talking about conservatives. I'm not necessarily talking about people on the far right. I'm not necessarily even talking about libertarian versus authoritarian. You're talking about, like, status I'm, quo conservatives. I'm talking about status quo conservatives. I'm talking about, like, Edmund Burke conservatives, all right? Mm. Like, we should put the French monarch back on the throne conservatives. Okay? okay? That's what I'm talking Those about. Those conservatives. Like, like reactionary but reactionary to the sense of whoa guys we don't really want to rock the boat too much here let's go back to the way things have been um divine right of kings divine right of kings patriarchy I mean, you know whatever whatever the major power structure happens to be they don't want to completely overthrow it and replace it with something else they don't want to change it too much they're fine with the way it is as as it is okay so you're talking about like the human equivalent of like a white bread and mayonnaise yeah, 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 sandwich. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 Ned Flanders. All right, just a, a plain white bread and a glass of water on the side for dipping. Like that's who we're talking about. Okay, Oakley, right? Oakley, neighbor, you know. And, and the reason why I have this, why I came up with this thesis, um, I was I was watching um, some YouTube videos before my run about um, <clears throat> about Christian propaganda movies. Mm-hmm. And oh, so they're was, terrible. I know. And so I was thinking about that kind of on my run, and then you know my my running like my my running mix is a lot of like punk rock and hip hop, and it kind of got me into thinking that art by its nature, in order to be good, art has to be in some way transgressive. 
And so if you don't believe that things need to be transgressed, like if you're just some like dullard pangloss who believes that this is the best of all possible worlds, like there is nothing for you to transgress against. And so when you try to make art, you try to transgress against something. And so you just always fail. What do you guys think? Huh. Well, <laughs> I that's think a thinker. I'll give you okay. So I'll give you an example. So like, the what made me think about this is that it's like man, like, like again talking about Christian propaganda, right? Um, and it's not like, it's not like Christianity hasn't produced as a mindset hasn't produced amazing works of art like again regardless right. of what you think about the mindset and even like, what you could consider christian propaganda yeah like, yeah, yeah, yeah like like literally the sistine chapel, sistine chapel. Yeah. like exactly what i was going to say like literally any like if you and that's why i wanted so, to talk about from like from the french revolution on as the terms of, of of um as conservatism because prior to the french revolution there is nothing to conserve right you have hundreds of years of divine rights of kings but the, what the artists of the medieval ages and like even the very very early modern renaissance, like, er, like right. renaissance and they're they are transgressing they are realizing that there is a problem to the world as it exists because a lot of that art imagines a world after death or focuses exclusively on real problems so we have like things like the sistine chapel or really any work of of renaissance art is largely about the transcendent nature of death and literally going to a better world. Or it's about this world is sinful. So like if you're looking at the works of William Shakespeare, this work is sinful. Here are like horrible people for you to either be fascinated by or laugh at or like, you know, be repulsed by or whatever. Elise is thinking really hard <laughs> about this. I guess, so... Um... So it's my background is both as somebody who once identified as Catholic, mm -hmm. uh, who was raised Catholic. I'm, I'm um, okay, and well. then, so is that, and then also as a classically trained violinist, mm -hmm. um, I think this is a really interesting idea. And I would argue that a lot of, um, a lot of kind of great works came out of people who needed to transgress against something. So you kept yeah. talking about, you kept referring to uh, the Sistine Chapel by... Uh, Whoever. It's not important. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> that, that's, that's Michelangelo, right? Michelangelo. Yeah. Um, I just, like, I was, like, sitting there, and I was like, there's not a D in there. There's not a D in there. If you guys say something, you're going to sound really stupid, Elise. <laughs> um, so, Right. So, like, he actually kind of had an axe to grind against yeah. the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, so, I guess this is, like, feeding into your thesis of this idea that the individual artists, because they had something to transgress against. Like, I would argue that people had shit. People had axes to grind before the French Revolution. No, I know. I'm, um, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. But I'm also saying, what I'm saying is even the people who were, like, fine with like divine rights of kings and things like that still realize that the world we live in is not the best possible world because like the ultimate goal was heaven right right so like even if you're like talking about someone like cotton mather right like the the speeches of like cotton mather you can still look at as being in some way transgressive because they're talking about the problems of the world as it exists okay all right 
Um, I would, I would get a bit in more of a, um, kind of in like a, like a, a secular or a profane mm-hmm. sort of, um, spin on this, which would be that individual artist contributions mm-hmm. in order to feed into your thesis okay. that conservatives can't art good. Yeah. Um, and defining, does defining conservative as you've defined it. Yes. Um, they, I would say those individuals on a very basic level had some kind of serious, we'll say beef mm-hmm. with whatever institution was paying them to do the thing at a time. Yeah. Um, or not even like that institution. And they had some other like greater and maybe it's related to their ideas of heaven. Maybe it's just religious, like personal issues that they had at the time. Like yeah. you, Michelangelo. Um, See Alta Dante Alighieri. How yeah. many popes did he put in the inferno? Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, so it's so, it's a lot. So like, even though you have this sort of monolithic, the Roman Catholic Church as people that are sponsoring a great deal of the art, kind of for for centuries mm. in Europe. Um, which is sort of like a, a, a monolith yeah. of making of, of a monolith of commissioning that these works happen. Uh, yeah, like I and I would and I would agree with that statement and looking at individual artists and their sort of own transgressionary nature um, against their commissioning monolith. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd also look at like uh He's like, I, I, I don't know. I want to work Vivaldi into this <laughs> thesis mostly because I love go, Vivaldi. Go ahead. Do it. Um, I don't know anything about him. So I can't okay. I, I really like Vivaldi and I get a lot of shit in classical music, music circles for enjoying Vivaldi because it's seen as sort of like trait. Uh, and he's seen as sort of like um, cliche, mm. I guess, at this point. Um, but I still really, but sometimes like, Sometimes things are just good because they're just good. <laughs> it's sort of the argument that I always come back to it mm-hmm. when people are like, why do you like Vivaldi so much? But, you know, in and of himself, he he did some pretty badass things. Like, he wrote for a all-girls school, um, and they had all-female orchestras, um, which was then, like, not, a th- a, like, a thing, um, and wouldn't be for, like, several centuries after. Um, you know, and, and still even to this day, like a lot of classical musicians, professional classical musicians, um, especially on the, if you look at the, the orchestra level or the philharmonic level, um, they're mostly men. Um, so this is kind of like a tradition that's continued and, and he did a lot for women's education at that time. Or not like a lot, but like he did a lot in his own small way of, you know, writing for the school giving them opportunities to perform and writing really beautiful and interesting music uh, for them to perform. So in all kind of like a, I guess you could argue that it's a transgressionary, uh, that that there, there are elements, there are like transgressionary elements uh, in his art because of, you know, sort of women's place in society at the time that he's writing um, and performing music. So I hope that was interesting. I, I feel like a bunch of people just fell asleep because I <laughs> talked about that. But yeah, he was also a ginger, the low gingers. <laughs> um, so you have an interesting 
thesis. Okay. And you've presented examples of the positive example of that. Yeah. Like, like how is it that people that are not conservative are current? But I don't think you've necessarily sold me on okay. the idea that those okay. that are on the conservative are not. So, so here's, again, like, here's why what I was thinking about with this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's... Let's look specifically at examples of propaganda, all right? Okay. okay. So let's talk about propaganda as art. Yeah, but not all art is propaganda, and if no, your no, argument no. is that no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. Can I'm, never just, art I'm just, I'm just, I'm narrowing it down for the sake of, for the sake of having a, some sort of scope to the next little bit of the conversation. Okay. 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 So in this, like, if this was our, you know, college sophomore English two eleven essay. Yeah. Okay, this is what like our yeah, next yeah, yeah. paragraph. So we're, is we're looking, be. we're looking, right. we're looking. I mean, at... we're doing with one person that just been come up with this thesis yeah, yeah. like an hour ago, and <laughs> that have just uh, yeah. been introduced okay. to it. So, so, and because since this was since this was the example that kind of set this in motion, this is what I want kind of want to start with. Okay. Um. So, like, well, I've watched a few. I was been watching a few things about propaganda videos in the last few days, and I watched um things about. The, the three gods not dead movies kind of back to back to back the other day Elise and I were watching um, videos about uh, Cold War propaganda oh, educational yeah. films right so like these sorts of things about like America like liberal capitalism is the greatest system ever made and like we all just have to fit into this machine of liberal capitalism like literally using that kind of language like right, if which you're was like the same language if, that communists use yeah like if you're this weirdo time. then you need to like change yourself like. If, if you don't feel like you're popular at school, just do what the popular kids do, like this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. All right? So that's... And then, like, of course, the God's Not Dead movies, basically saying that, oh, uh, American, like, uh, Christians, like, like uh, um, Protestant Christians are really secretly persecuted against. And here's how. And Kevin Sorbo's this evil, like, professor making all of his people say... Uh, that God's dead and there's one kid is standing up to him and that one kid was Albert Einstein. Not really, but it's like the, you know, that's the post. Like, like it was literally made off of a post. Like, even, like, not even a post. Like, a chain email that your grandmother would send to you, like, three times a year. Like, that's, that's, well, not your grandmother, but you know what I mean. Um, but, like, that's, that's what it is, is it's trying to, because all art is transgression. The artists have to make themselves the transgressors, mm -hmm. right? Like you have to, the, the view that you want to do. So if you're doing propaganda, which is one of the reasons why I want to talk about that. If you're doing propaganda, you have to put yourself as the transgressor, right? This is the thing you need to break against. Mm -hmm. This is the thing you need to transgress against. But since all of modern American society is built to make room, if not built exclusively for Protestant Christians, they are then made to have to build this narrative whereby they're the oppressed. And so by believing the dominant ideology, you're secretly the cool rebel, right? Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the kind of backwards arithmetic that they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that, and that's kind of what set this in motion. And then I started thinking, well, all propaganda is like that. All propaganda is cheesy. But I realized very quickly that that's wrong because there hey, are those communist paintings. 
of that the, 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 of that, that man, interracial gay couple <laughs> that interracial yeah. gay couple are beautiful and they speak to me on a very personal well, level I was actually going to go not for the paintings but I was going to go I was going to stay in the genre of film because oh. I immediately thought of two examples one far right and one far left that counteracts that one of them was Lenny Riefenstahl who we've talked about on a previous podcast and we've talked about um can you separate the artist from the art? Um, so if you're interested in her works, go back and talk, check that out. She did like Triumph of the Will and like the Berlin Olympics 1936 or whatever that movie was called. Um, is the other one Battleship Potemkin? The other one is Battleship Potemkin. Okay. <laughs> and, and really anything um, made by Sergei Eisenstein, but, but Potemkin was the one that really jumped into my head. Because, you know, by the time Eisenstein was making that film... Uh, and maybe maybe I'm being unfair here, but I still feel like the, these are two, they are the dominant ideologies in the countries in which they're taking place, mm-hmm. right? But what separates them apart is that the people who are making Potemkin are making it shortly after they actually did have to overcome oppression. Mm-hmm. Like the, the story in Battleship Potemkin is based off of actual events. Like it's based off of something that actually happened yeah. as opposed to being based off of some post, <laughs> some, some anonymous post on Facebook. On 4chan. On 4chan. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, that student's name was Albert Einstein. Um, and it's just like, and so even though it is the dominant Famous Jewish Christian, yeah, <laughs> Albert Einstein. Einstein. Yep. Um, just, in fairness, it wasn't specifically Christian in the post. It was just about God. But you know which God he was talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's like, it's got to show... Oh, I lost my train of thought. Okay, so both in both cases, it, we'll, we'll focus on Potemkin, because like I said, I don't want to talk about Riefenstahl anymore. We've talked about her already. So we're going to focus on Eisenstein. And fuck her. Yeah, and fuck her for being a Nazi, also. Um, so we're going to focus on Eisenstein, right? Right. So, so Eisenstein was making this in a time period, in a place where, you know, Soviet ideology was the dominant ideology, obviously. But it had not been forever. And there were people who were living there who did not always believe it. And so the goal of Battleship Potemkin and his other films, but Potemkin's the most famous. Uh, Ten Days That Shook the World is still is yeah, pretty good, too. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's, there's other ones. Mm-hmm. But, but Potemkin is the one that everyone brings up, so... And that's the one that most people know. Uh. Um, if you're not familiar with Battleship Potemkin, if you've seen the the famous shots of like the soldiers marching and then the close up of people screaming faces and the baby carriage rolling, the marching down the, steps, down the steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's from Battle- that movie. Yeah, that's Battleship Potemkin. Yeah. Um, it's about it's about the 1905 uh, mutiny of the sailors of the Potemkin in the Black Sea fleet. Yes. A, uh, before this, this is like talking about events that happened before the actual revolution mm-hmm. and failed. Yes. But yeah, no, sorry. Just just to set context for people yeah. that lived under a rock for the past 150 but years. But basically, the thing that's the thing that's important about this movie is that even though Soviet ideology is the dominant ideology of the time, it was not the only ideology that had existed, mm-hmm. um, and it was one that was attempting to gain ground. So and it hadn't even been all that long ago. Yeah. Like, it was released yeah, yeah, yeah. in 25, and the Civil War yeah. ended in, like, 21. But the reason why this film it was important for the Soviets is because, you know, their, the, the Soviet Union was fucking huge. And it consisted of a lot of different ethnic groups with a lot of different, um, with a lot of different languages. 
and a lot of different like backgrounds. And so it was really hard to spread printed propaganda to kind of explain, hey, we overthrown the czar, like this is what's going on now, mm -hmm. this is what's happening. Um, and so the, uh, the medium of film became extremely important for the early Soviets because, you know, this was an era before sound had entered film. So it was something that could exist outside of a context of language. Mm -hmm. And so Eisenstein basically had to invent Soviet montage, which is what the, the, the step sequence is in that film, um, as an example of, to kind of show people to kind of create these, these images and ideas in people's heads um, to, to kind of get them to buy into the revolution. Um, and since this, again, was a young ideology, not everyone believed it, it was very important and it really helped. Fast forward to today, all right? These Christian propaganda films are not made for a wide audience. Why is that? They're made, they're made to basically support people who already believe the things that they believe. They're not going to convert anyone to that ideology, unlike things like Potemkin. Mm -hmm. well, why is that? First of all, it's because the movies suck. <laughs> and none of these people are Sergei Eisenstein, obviously. Another problem, though, that they have is that to convert someone to a new ideology, you have to at first convince them that there is a problem that needs to be fixed. Right. This is where conservatism fails as an ideology because conservatism is based off of the idea that things are fine and if things aren't fine, then it's your fault. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you guys with me so far? So far. Okay. Because and, and I, don't, I don't think I'm making this up because, again, the whole idea behind this is, oh, these guys are overthrowing their king and trying to start a republic. We should put that king back on the throne and that would solve the problems because the problem is that people are trying to solve the problems. Well, we shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm oversimplifying for the sake of argument. So for this, you have to you have to convince someone that there's a problem that needs to be solved and if the problem is that people aren't listening to you enough, to you specifically and your ideology, then you're not going to convert more people who don't already agree with you. Right. Um, and this is especially a problem for American Protestants because at least like Catholics, while they, there's like, they have a lot of issues, one issue that they don't have is convincing people that the world sucks because they, they like all know that the world sucks. <laughs> And, like, their version of heaven is at least transcendent. Whereas most American Protestants are like, no, you just go to heaven. And it's basically the same as, like, you know, you, it's white suburbia forever. Like, that's, that's the vision of heaven that Protestants have, which is why The, the, uh, uh, which is why the Good Place is a terrible show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's been your TED Talk. Thank that's you. been my TED Talk. Thank you very much. Um, I just had to bring the good place because because that that was like the best that was the reason why I hated that show. Oh, oh now it comes out like, on the podcast that that's why. You I hated mean, it, it wasn't the only reason that, and it's not funny. Oh. Uh, but but yeah, no, I mean that's that's ultimately what the real problem is is that they're the dominant ideology. They don't realize that the dominant ideology, so they can't. They're putting themselves in the position of the oppressed, and they're not doing anything to kind of say, hey. This is how our worldview can make the world better because your worldview is the one that's already fucking the world up. This yeah. I this idea that oh we need to go back to the way things were when things were worse. Yeah. So 
Uh, I don't know if you're going to cut in here, Alex. But... I was going to cut in with kind of a half-assed transition to something else, but go ahead and if you have oh, got something no, more on point. No, I still have point. thoughts about this. No, you keep, keep talking. No, it's fine. We're going to beat this horse some more. <laughs> um, I, so I'm hearing what you're saying. Mm. My argument would be not that they can't art good. Uh-huh. Because um, I don't know if we've come up with a sufficient number of. I'm I'm I don't, I don't fully know if aware up, that I'm just sufficient... like, it's I'm just starting this, and it might be that you know again, this God's not dead is made by Pure Flex and Sergey Eisenstein and Sergey Eisenstein, but I I think it's less about that and that they they they. Ultimately, they care more about the message than about the story that they're telling. Right. Because great art is stories, in my opinion. It doesn't have to be. It, it can't. Like, a lot of times it is. Well, but... you gotta you got to have a story, or you have to have a feeling, or you mm. have to have a great driving force. And the great... The problem with films like God's Not Dead, I think, is the their great driving force uh, is their own message right or their own ideology but, but that's that's kind of my point is that because their ideology is the dominant ideology of the country See, they're, they're trying I... to at the same time convince you that the country is falling apart but they're the dominant ideology Nick, so they have I... to kind of force all these other things i hear you okay i hear you my argument is that it's it's not where their ideology comes from. It's the fact that they care more about fitting a story into their ideology as opposed to letting a story speak for itself. At least in the case of film, I understand, and theater. So I, I and music. Like that's the other thing is that like all of these things like like music, at least twentieth century popular music, is at some degree transgressive. Well, some beautiful music that came out of the 19th century nationalist movements there was there was a lot of like really wonderful music that came out of that and that wasn't really transgressive it was, it was very the, conservative was. in a way uh, well, because it was let's it was this idea of like we need to get back to us as a nation but it was getting back to a fictionalized version of us as yes. a nation well, as opposed is, to the more feudal because, version before because what i'm saying because nationalism in the 19th century is a transgressive idea to a degree because it's something new yeah. especially against like the austrians yeah we're, yeah we've it, got this large multi-ethnic semi-feudal or state if you're looking at some place like italy or germany or the united states which essentially had been made up of all these different other like provinces and states and like principalities that are now thinking coming to think of themselves as Americans, Italians, yeah. Germans. So once, that's a new yeah. idea. So in the 19th once century. they became the dominant ideology, afterwards, like in the, I which guess. is why Sousa sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> like, and that, that's kind of my point is like when these things are the dominant ideology, we don't have to look exclusively at film. Like, look at fucking like, look at fucking like. I don't know, Christian rock music as opposed to anything in the top 40. Like, top 40 stuff sucks pretty often, but you know what sucks even more? Christian rock. You want to know why? Because, again, there's nothing transgressive so about I, it. I think I don't... My argument is not that they're bad because they're, tra they're not transgressionary enough. Mm. My argument is that 
they're bad because they don't care about their art as much as they care about their message. And they force their art to fit their message as opposed to caring and and supporting their own artistry. I don't disagree with you. The point that I'm trying to make, and and maybe I'm phrasing this poorly, but basically the idea is that if you're telling a good story, by nature, it becomes transgressive because you have to set up someone as a bad guy. And who is someone who fits in as a bad guy is someone who's actually in a power structure of some kind. Cardinal Richelieu, Adolf Hitler, Donald Trump. Like, these make for really good stories. If the story is, you know, if there if there is a bad guy, you know, if there's a story, there has to be a bad guy, right? Uh. So you have to have an actual, some sort of oppressive bad guy, or at least a figure you can reasonably turn into an oppressive bad guy to make a compelling story. If we're focusing just on story. And I think that you can say similar things for like music and painting and other things as well, but I know less about that. Um, So if you're looking at a story told from the point of view of someone in the dominant ideology, who becomes the bad guy? The bad guy is someone who in reality is actually the oppressed and you have to do all of these hat tricks, like all these little flips and and trips, tricks of the mind to make that person the oppressor. Kinda. But let's talk about socialist realism. Okay. So, <laughs> so the, in, in socialist realism, in, in like, and it's less like in film. Like, Wait, like, can I interject real, real quick before yeah, we get off sure. on socialist realism? Okay. Um, which is, I guess, to clarify the point that I was trying to make, mm-hmm. Um, is this idea that they do not invest in the actual mechanics of art making. Yes. So they don't invest because they don't care about the actual mechanics of art making. And like I'm, Christian musicians don't care about the music no, as much as they care about I'm, I'm hearing the you, thing. Okay. I'm agreeing with you. All right. I'm, saying, I'm saying my theory is essentially that the reason why that is... is so you're saying the dominant... The dominant reasoning behind why yeah. they care why about they it. care okay. more about the message is because they have no me- they, they have no means to make it an actual thing they have no means to make it authentic okay because they have no actual gripe they have no actual story to tell okay because there is nothing that they're transgressing against okay there's no there are no social ills that they want to point out Okay. Because the po- social ills that they really would like to point out are the things that make them the bad guys in every other story. All right. Like, like they're the, that's the reason why, you know, the, the, the in crowd are always the bad guys in film. Like, yeah. if you want to do like a really basic teenage movie, the good guys are like the weird quirky outcasts and the bad guys are the in crowd. And I'm saying that because mainstream Protestant Christianity is already the in crowd in the United States, that if they said their actual ideology, that would make them the bad guy. So they have to instead focus on the message of, no, we're really the oppressed ones, which makes for insincere and therefore bad art. Okay. That's what I'm trying to say. Because if you actually have a gripe, if you actually have something that has happened to you, you have a story to tell. You have a bad guy. You have a narrative. You don't just have, in the words of Papa Zizek, pure ideology. <laughs> You've got something else 
that has formed that ideology into a story. Whereas if you were in the dominant culture, like this is why Leave it to Beaver has no story, right? It's just like goofy little slice of life because there's no bad guy. Why? Because we live in the best of all possible worlds. And when that becomes hokey, when that becomes corny, you know, Thomas Kincaid is never going to, you know, blow the art world away because he has nothing to say. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm saying is that like all of this, like good art comes from having something to say, having something to say in some way comes from being ostracized from the mainstream of society. So if you're in the mainstream of society in all ways, if you are a white Protestant Christian American, then you cannot make <laughs> then unless you have something else that like pushes you outside of the norm but if that's your whole ideology is america is the best country in the world and we need to respect our elders and you know god is at the center of my life and all these things that make up the main like <clears throat> the 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 hegemony i suppose of the united states and you have nothing to complain about other than sometimes people say that like what i think is dumb and that's your only argument <laughs> Then you have to turn the person who says... Sometimes liberal professors yeah, are mean to me. Sometimes liberal professors are mean to you, but the me reason why liberal professors are mean to you is because you are completely unwilling to hear other people's stories. <laughs> and that's why you have to turn that person into the villain, which is completely disingenuous and makes no sense and makes bad art. So let's flip this on its head. Okay. All right. So if good art is when you are transgressing against the status quo and against the power structures that exist. Mm -hmm. Then what kind of art do you make when the ideology that is trying to fix those comes to power? And how do you make it good? I would still say... Okay, so I, I think I know where you're going with this. But okay. I, think, I, I would still say that... Because again, if you're looking at... If you're looking at conservatism as an ideology... The idea is that essentially, you know, medieval power structures are good. Mm -hmm. And it's changed somewhat, obviously, in the last 200 years. But it's still that kind of mindset is we need to have the one, you know, the, the patriarchal, tough leader. Leadership is based on strength. Mm -hmm. Like it's based off of physical will to power kind of thing. And it's essentially like, it's based off of the idea of the patriarchal family, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so the king is the is the dad, and then everybody else are the babies, like that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And that we we love and admire our head of state, and in turn he gives us treats. <laughs> um, you know that that basic kind of um, like social contract, the, the very basic that like cult of personality. Cult of, not even a cult of personality, but like a, a, a cult of the of hierarchy mm -hmm. and a, and a worship and a need for that hierarchy and a place in it even if it's low down that conservatives believe in a hierarchy and they believe in um those kinds of traditional power structures you know the family the church the state whether that's a monarchy or something else but you know i think in a lot of conservatives minds these days like the 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 troops have kind of replaced the king. You gotta support the troops. You gotta support the troops. You gotta support the troops. Um, but that's like, that's kind of what I'm where I'm going with with it. So, 
when something other than that kind of ideology becomes the dominant ideology, I think there's still a place for art because there were, there were places for art before. It just, what I'm saying is that art has to come from an understanding that this is not the best world, that there are problems with the world and that art kind of comes from that conflict of needing the world to be better. And I don't think that the world will ever be perfect, but what I'm trying to say is that people who tend to be conservative tend to think either the world is perfect or the world at some point was perfect. Mm. And that's what we need to get back to. And that if, if that's the case, then there is nothing to aspire to. There is nothing new to go towards. Mm. You can't build towards luxury gay space capital. Uh, yes, yes, exactly <laughs> right. Like, if if that's what you think. And again, I, I'm sorry I harp so much on Christianity, but it was just such an obvious thing for mm -hmm. the United States because, like, there is, like, you can see obvious examples of that with Christian film and Christian music. And I think that's the reason why they suck. Because, like, you can see movies that are made by people who believe, like, terrible things that are still good art. But you can't watch people who buy buy uh, movies and like uh, art by things. Uh, you can't enjoy art by people, excuse me, who have an, a very milk toast ideology. Again, that that Ned Flanders mm -hmm. plain white bread with a glass of water on the side for dipping. Unless you already completely buy into. Unless that you already completely buy into that, because there is no story. Then it's just it's it's a it's a nice warm blanket you can wrap yourself up in. As opposed to, oh, this is something that's challenging me and like making me see the world in new ways. And maybe I agree with it. Maybe I disagree with it. But the important thing is that it's saying something. Mm -hmm. It's offering me some sort of an alternative, some different way of seeing the world. Um, and that's where the good art comes from, is in some sort of difference between the world as it is and the world as it might be, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Um, well, here's another example. Lars von Trier. Um, really far right wing, as far as I'm aware, in a lot of his politics, kind of a shitty person, makes really good films. All right? Because he does have something to say about the world. He doesn't believe that this world is perfect. He's got a lot of shitty things to say about women, but those shitty things he has to say about women sometimes make an interesting movie. Even if it's in a movie whose politics I completely wholly disagree with, from a very basic level. Who is this person? Lars von Trier. Um, he made uh, Antichrist and Kingdom Hospital, or The Kingdom. Um, oh, God, what else did he make? Uh, Nymphomaniac. He's a, he's a, I think, Danish director. Um, he's sort of the Danish David Lynch. Okay. Um, but, like, he's got some fucked up views about women. Don't ever watch Antichrist. Don't ever watch it. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, man. Um... But yeah, so so just like that's what I'm trying to say is that okay. it, it art comes from seeing the world as it is, realizing that there's a problem and having something to say about one of those problems. And if your problem is a a group of people who are already like not necessarily marginalized, but like not a big issue in the world, like if your biggest problems is again, sometimes liberal professors are mean to me because they don't think that they make me read things that I disagree with like that. <laughs> like if that's your big issue, then you have nothing of substance to say for good or ill. 
Mm-hmm. You're just, again, you're, you're that plain white bread with a glass of water on the side for dipping. That's all you are, ideologically. Gotcha. Um, what were you going to talk to us about social... Or... I, I kind of brought it in back okay. again, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because socialist realism was kind of the dominant art form of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War, and it started out as kind of an attempt to show the reality of what we've been like and where we're going to, and then it, as, as things kind of stagnated through the Stalin years, it turned into more of a cult yeah. of personality and kind of things like that. Yeah, but, but at first still, it had it's it aspirational. Had, yeah, and then it got into the aspirational stuff with the space. Yes, and like we're yeah. gonna build you know a future in space. Yeah. Um. And then that didn't happen, unfortunately. And then, like, <laughs> yeah, again, kind of bringing it back to, to like, mm-hmm. Christian propaganda. Yeah. is like, you're aspiring to the world as it already is. Mm-hmm. You're aspiring, like, or, like, uh, 1950s propaganda. Mm-hmm. You're aspiring to be the man in the gray flannel suit. And then the people who saw that and were horrified by that made really interesting art. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where the beat poets come from. That's where, like... Um, Philip K. Dick comes from in a lot of ways. Uh, one of my favorite short stories by him is a uh, one called *The Mold of Yancey*, which is all about how art and culture influences personalities. Um, and it's basically like it, it takes place in this in the this future where the hum- humans have basically colonized the entire solar system, and there's like one one of the moons of Jupiter or something, like the 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 space UN basically is looking at what's going on there. And they're like, we think it's a totalitarian state. We can't really prove it. Cause they're not really doing anything, but like, it's weird. Can you go <laughs> investigate? And they go and investigate and they find out that basically all television is just this old guy named Yancey. Who's like, well, I don't know much about much. But I know I like my checkers and I like my glass of lemonade in the in the afternoon. And so basically, it's called Mold of Yancey because like everyone basically just because that's the art they have to consume. Mm-hmm. That's what their personality is. Like they don't think. And so the way that the people who go to investigate end up subverting this totalitarian government is they start like, well, they're they're totalitarian because the only art is like something you can't disagree with. And so. What if we made Yancey, like, more controversial? And so they find out that he's a, just a computer program. Mm. And so they tweak the program. So it's like, all right, instead of something simple like checkers, now he likes this variation on chess that, like, 19th century Prussian generals played to, like, increase their battle tactics. So it's like, that's something you can disagree with. <laughs> that's, like, something that, like, or if you did start doing it, it would change the way that you would think about the world. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it was, sure. It's a really interesting short story. But I think, I feel like that story kind of in a lot of ways spins out of this hegemonic culture of America in the 1950s where it's like, you do have to fit into this mold. There is nothing to aspire to other than, um, you know, the same kind of life that your parents had, which your parents didn't really have. The, the video that we watched about the 1950s uh, uh, movies, uh, like the uh, propaganda films that we watched, made a really interesting point in that those things kind of erase the past. It's like, oh, the Great Depression. Yeah, never the Great happened. Depression never happened. World War II never happened. Your World parents, War One didn't yeah, happen. Your parents have the exact same experiences that you have, so just be like your parents in all ways, forever. Just kind of replicate 
that same belief of like, you know, the mom stays home and does all the housework. The dad goes out to work and just copy and paste that ad nauseum. And that's just the world forever. Which is one of the things that makes the world of Fallout so interesting is that like that imagines the world as if that had happened. Mm. Anyway, I, we've talked about this for like 40 minutes and I wasn't expecting that. Well, you, you did say it would go on either one of two ways. Yeah. So, I so any, I, I think I've speak, spoken enough on this topic. Does anyone else have any, any no. thoughts about this? Um, I'm good. Elise. I feel like I said mine. Okay. I mean, but do you see where I'm coming from with this? Like, no, no, no. And I don't know if my argument is a support. I think I, it is because you're, you're saying a lot of the same things that I was thinking. It's just that you're saying it differently. Yeah. You're saying it differently. I, I think we're the, the, I, yeah. the pieces aren't really connecting between both of these arguments, but like I agree with what you're saying. For so, sure. so between the three of us, yes. <laughs> we can form a coherent thesis. Yeah. But each one of us individually only brings part of it to the table. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, we did a thing for you guys. We did do a thing. We did. We actually had a we had a single topic. We discussed it. We discussed it for an adequate length of time. Yeah. You ready to break that trend and talk about something completely different? Uh, sure. All do right. you have anything? Because <laughs> that was the only thing that I really wanted to talk about this week. All right. Um, so I've got a. I guess the only thing I really do these days is watch anime. It's terrible, but uh, I finally started watching Megalobox. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I'm not not all the way through, but I'm I'm getting there. Okay. And it's it's pretty good. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Because like you talked I, it's about, it's been a while since I've watched it. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about it. All right. So I've I've gotten up to the point where um, Gearless Joe has made his debut. Okay. I, the, the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you can talk about this aspect of the show that I loved. <laughs> Every episode of the show feels like it's a different show, doesn't it? No, not really. The, I the, <laughs> See, when I watched it, that's kind of how I thought about it, is that, like, you you thought, like, okay, so going into it, okay, and, and I guess spoilers from this point on for Megalobox if you haven't watched it yet. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, I thought at the beginning of the show, right, right, that it would be, it would be about oh well we got to get this gear working, like we got to get that, and then like we had the thing where it's like oh this is based off of the gear that the champ uses, and if you use this they can win any fight. I'm like oh well this is gonna be the thing, this is how they get in, mm-hmm. and then it like immediately falls apart. Yeah, and you're like well shit, well now what's this show gonna be? And then like you get the episode where he fights, where he fights the the war vet. And like oh, the first, oh, you have no. He fought the shark man. Oh, yeah. okay. Then never mind. Okay. Never mind, because I thought I was thinking that you, had, um, when you said made his debut, for some reason I was thinking, got actually gotten into Megalonia. No. Okay. All right then. Yeah. The episode because the episode. So there's a the, big thing you want to talk about that I can't talk about right now. Uh, it's like I think it's the next episode. If it's not the next episode, it's the episode after that. Probably. But basically, you're gonna get to an episode really soon where you're gonna start watching it and be like, "Did I click the wrong thing?" Okay. And the answer is no. It's still Megalobox. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep watching it. You gotta watch it for like five minutes. But for five minutes, it's a completely different anime. <laughs> like it's just completely different and it just follows someone else for a while. Okay. And you're like, what is this story? And what does it have to do with literally anything? (laughs) And then you realize what it is and you're like, Oh, Oh shit. No, this is actually really good. And then it gets even better. Okay. So just, 
Yeah. So keep watching. We'll we'll have to come back. But yeah, uh, um, yeah, the first the first yeah. I'll probably the, be caught up by the next episode. Up so. through the up through the fight, you'll, you'll probably. I mean, you mean finished? Yeah. Because th- there's not gonna be any more. No? I don't. I uh, seriously okay. don't think. Gotcha. I think this was a one and done. Um, if they do make more, I'll be happy. But there, there's no more story left to tell. I'll put it like that. Okay. They 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 wrap everyone's story arc unless there's like a time jump. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I could see them continuing it because everyone's story arc is so completely like wrapped up in such a satisfying manner that I can't imagine that they even want to make more. Gotcha. Um. But God, is it good? Okay, yeah. The so the shark guy fight that was good. I mean, there's some they they seem to be going in one direction. I don't want to talk about all of it. Because, all right, like, we don't have to talk. There, about there's it. so fine. many there's so many twists to that show. False and, like, false alarm, guys. We're not going to talk about Megalobox. I mean, we <laughs> other than just fucking watch it. Like like I know I said it when I was watching it like every every episode. Mm-hmm. But if you still haven't watched it. Go back and watch it. Even if you don't think you like anime, even if you don't like sports anime, if you if you don't like, you know, whatever. I mean, it's an even amazingly if like, good story. Like, do you do you like Rocky? Yeah, yeah. You'll probably like. I, it. I mean, it yeah. is. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it, it's it's Rocky in the world of Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, that's really because <laughs> that that was the other thing that I appreciated about the show is that it felt like at any minute the Bebop crew could just kind of wander in and mm-hmm. like collect a bounty on one of the characters and it wouldn't feel out of place at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a great show. Oh man. Yeah. When you get, I want to talk about the, the, the episode where he fights the veteran. Cause that's like, that to me is where the story gets really, really good. All right. And then when that character comes back, it's even better. Okay. So, Next, next time that we come here, we'll talk about we'll it. Talk about it. Um, um, but so I've not just been watching that, but also, and uh, this is like a half-baked thing I wanted to talk about. Okay. Um, but I've, we've already talked about Nick's half-baked thing. So. <laughs> it was partially baked, yes, right. but I think it was a good theory, and I think it bears further exploration by people smarter than me. Um, so alongside that, I've also been watching a couple other things. One of them I want to save until I actually get further into it, because I want to actually develop a kind of a, a spiel about it. Okay. Uh, but one I feel like I can talk about already, and that is a show called uh, Working. American Vandal Season 2. No. Oh, actually, yeah. <laughs> now that you remind me, yes, we did watch, we American, did watch Vandal. American Vandal. My grandma and I watched American Vandal. Uh, and um, you guys watched American Vandal. No, what was the other thing you wanted to talk about uh, before we get into that? Mm, Okay. Um, let, me, let me rest my vocal cords for a bit. Okay. So I'm watching a show that's, in Japanese, the show is called Working, with two exclamation points. In America, it's, or in English, it's called Wagnaria. Um, but it's an older show about these kids that are working part-time in essentially the Japanese version of Denny's. Uh, <laughs> that and- sounds awful. <laughs> Go on. Um... But, like, the the whole core concept of the show is that all these characters are kind of quirky, and, and now they're just kind of going about their with their quirkiness and interacting with each other. So it's kind of like a slice-of-life thing. So workplace comedy, but... Workplace comedy. But anime. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not... I'm almost through the first season of it. There are three seasons. Um, and 
I was thinking going into this, it was going to be a lot more like office space than it turned out to be. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's of course, a lot more anime. Um, but the main kind of driving thing between the characters is uh, each, each employee has a different kind of personality quirk. The main ones being um, the main hero protagonist guy. Uh, I think his, I can't remember his name. You never hear the main guy's name, um, <laughs> but he is uh, extremely attracted to very cute things, Aww. like they could be babies or puppies or um, water lice. You know, anything that's really small. Elise uh, <laughs> uh, is giving a look, <laughs> and uh, so he is asked by uh, a person that looks like she's in elementary school uh to come work at this job and he's like oh are you lost are you lost little kid and like, no she's like one year older than him but because she's small um he and everyone mistakes her for being someone younger uh but they go to work at japanese denny's and, <laughs> and uh, like you do like you do uh, shota is the the main character and uh papura is the 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 short 17 year old um and the main kind of drama between it is between shota and another girl that works there called mar marihu Ma sorry uh mariru uh and she has got this problem that essentially and and you've kind of find out this late in the first season that she has been essentially gaslit by her father her whole life oh, geez. to hate men with a passion. And so every time she sees a man or gets real close to, or gets close enough to someone within a certain distance, she has an uncontrollable urge to punch them in the face. Aww. So the, the fact that all of a sudden there's a man working in her workplace that she didn't know about until she shows up to work one day, mm -hmm. um, kind of doesn't work out too well at first, but the whole story is really about, them trying to help her overcome this problem. And uh, in, like, like a lot of times, it's just kind of, you know, Shota is, is just kind of letting himself be the punching bag for her uh -huh. uh, as she becomes more and more acquainted with them. And in the most recent episode I watched, her father actually shows up to the, okay. to the, sh uh, to the, the restaurant um, because he's mostly out of town. And essentially... If he'd found out that there was a boy working at the restaurant, he has a gun and is going to <laughs> shoot this kid. Um, so she, so so Shota has to dress up like a girl and okay. pretend to be a girl in order to not get killed. And it, it's just kind of weird of a show. Um, and, you don't say. <laughs> and I'm trying to put together a like like looking at like just that story part. That's fine. But I want to look at it from the perspective as a business. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because Wagnaria restaurant, um, everyone's got these different things going about them. Like, one of them is one of the, the waitresses carries around a katana all the time for no real reason. Okay. Her family were blacksmiths. That's her reason she gives for carrying a katana. 
the the manager does nothing, which to be fair, that's kind of what managers do. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's that's accurate. And basically just sits in the back and eats parfaits all the time out of the company stock. <laughs> um, and the main and the um, the two cooks that work it, one of them is very friendly, very affable, but knows enough about everybody to blackmail them into doing what he wants, but right. usually doesn't ask for much. Uh, and then the other guy is just kind of a chain-smoking, silent type. Uh, so so there's all these different quirky people working there, and at one point the main character, who's completely oblivious to his own quirky nature, is wondering, why do people keep coming here? Why, why is this company still in business? Any other restaurant, if you had people threatening the customers, you know, with violence because they're men, uh, or carrying around swords while delivering food, uh, or being, you know, like the manager doing nothing, but when she does do something is actually like in the mafia. Um, how does that company stay in business? And one of, like, the manager or somebody eventually kind of comes up with the idea of, well, the customers actually like the danger. <laughs> <laughs> the customers yeah. like the idea that there's there's some kind of uh, unique thing about this restaurant that you can't get anywhere else. And I just kind of wanted to explore that a little bit. And I don't know if, if... I mean, I think there's a restaurant, I think it's in Chicago, but maybe oh, it's yeah. in New York. Oh, yeah, Dick's Last Resort. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, and it's... And the, its whole shtick is that you just get insulted <laughs> from the time that you come into the restaurant until the until you leave. Okay. And like the waitstaff is really rude, but because it's part of the shtick, everybody's like fine with it, and it's funny. Okay. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you, like food at cat cafes tends to kind of suck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're not going there for the food; for the food. you're going there for the cats. So. I could see it, like, you know, you're some, like, weird, pervy businessman, I'm assuming, and you go to this, like, weird place where it's all women threatening you. Yeah, I mean, like, financial domination is a is a way that a lot of dominatrix make money. Right. You know, so I think there's, like, a market for this and a... At a smaller price point. Okay. You know, you still get that sense, that rush of danger, but you're not forking over tens of thousands of dollars to someone. Right. And all of the, like, like, but that's also the thing is, like, those places, those examples are examples where it's, like, intentional. Uh-huh. Whereas this, it's completely unintentional <laughs> on the people doing the, the threatening. Yeah, but the people, like, if there are repeat customers, mm-hmm. then they probably are aware of it, and that's probably what they are going there for. Right. Um, but, but yeah, it's it's something where it's a show that I started watching when I finished watching Nichiju, and it's like, I want to watch another Slice of Life thing. Uh, and it's it's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty good. Um Basically, it's just kind of been me catching up with a lot of shows that I wanted to watch in high school. Mm-hmm. Like, this was one of them. Like, I had heard about this, and I was like, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, this and this other show that I'm watching that I'm keeping secret to you guys for some reason. Okay. Um, but I'll talk about it another time. Um, like, these are two things that I really wanted to watch in high school but couldn't yeah. find or get a hold of. And, like, now I'm able to catch up and actually have a childhood or whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so so it's just something that I wanted to kind of share a little bit. Um, yeah. But oh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank thank you. you. As yeah. I secretly play Pokemon Go. <laughs> while you're talking. But there's an Abra in the apartment, and I really Wait, need an Alakazam. Wait, where? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
All right. So if you know where our apartment is, mm-hmm. there's an Abra hey, here. Hey, there's an Abra right now. <laughs> at the time of this recording, which is 24 hours in the past for you, at least. Yeah. <laughs> well, 24 hours in the future, we're probably going to be doing something together, aren't we? That's true. We are going to go see Boku no My Macadamia. <laughs> I'm sorry, you want to try that again? Uh, the Twin Snakes. <laughs> I've just decided that I'm gonna go full chaotic evil with uh, with anime. It really bothers him when people call Deku Green Naruto. So now so... Naruto is just Orange Deku, <laughs> and he's just he's he's got. Boruto is Orange De- is Orange Deku's son. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, we Piccolo, decided... Piccolo is orange, bar, uh, orange uh, uh, Deku's dad. Bakugo and Vegeta. is uh, Bakugo. Not uh, Sasuke. Is is... Spiky Sasuke. Uh, spiky, oh yeah, Spiky, spiky, spiky Bakugo. No, not Spiky. Explosion. Explosion. Bakugo. 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 That's what it is. That's what we decided. Fun. Yep. So anyway, we're gonna go see a movie. <laughs> we're gonna go see the the My Hero Academia. Two. Uh, what is it? Two heroes. Twin two sna- heroes. Twin snakes. Twin uh, snakes, no, two it, heroes, two heroes. It's it's my Brother. hero, my hero academia takes America. Yep. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. That's gonna be good. Yeah. I hope we don't end up like looking forward to it and then ranting about it, how much we is it, it. Well, I mean, if they explain how the fuck uh, his eyes went from going from being white to black. <laughs> That's really all I bought the ticket for. Whose eyes? What? Um, all mates. Oh, in yeah. the trailer, his eyes are white. What the fuck? That's like, was... And that's like the yeah. stinger at the end of the trailer. And so you're like, what? Uh, that's all I want to find out. I didn't why, watch are, the why are his eyes white in that trailer? They're black in the show. Why are they white in the trailer? That's what I want. I thought out. it was more prominent on his face versus more sunken in. That too. I, you know. Well, we'll have to go and find out. And may, do, I mean, we're going to be going together. Yeah. If it's yeah. not, like, too late, do you want to, like, record our hot takes on it uh, afterwards? It starts at 7.30. So, we'll and we're going we're going to be kind of a ways away. So, it'll probably be, like, close to 10 o'clock by the time we get back. So Yeah. So, like, we don't go to bed until 1.30, right? <laughs> you don't go to bed until oh 1.30. God, we have actual jobs. <laughs> um, but you wanted to, okay, so we should also talk about, before it gets too late, uh, the season season two of American Vandal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What'd you think? I liked it. Yeah, I did like it a lot. I liked it as well. My grandma liked it more than the first season. Really? really? Yeah. Because we were talking about how it wasn't as good as the first season. Like it's not bad. It's just it's kind of a sophomore slump. Mike, I don't know about that, like, at all. But I asked my grandma for her take on it, and she said she liked it better than the first season. Okay. And this was her reason why. Okay. Uh, it was more of an in-depth kind of conspiracy. Yeah. And okay. it had a proper conclusion in her eyes. Right. And I, I did say uh, when we finished watching it that I, I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm glad they didn't try to redo the first season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, like, the first season ends kind of ambiguously. Mm-hmm. I like that the first season ends ambiguously. Mm-hmm. And I like that the second season doesn't. Right. Um, I don't think that one is necessarily better than the other. No. But I think that if they tried to do both of the seasons, one or the other, that it would have been weaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like the, the conspiratorial aspect of it, that there was like, um, spoilers, but yeah, there's a conspiracy. There's a conspiracy involved. It's not just one person. 
Um, but where I say it's weaker than the other season, um, the, the thing that I found the strongest about the first season was in the relationships of the characters with one another. Mm-hmm. And like how this all kind of plays together and how the filmmakers get caught up in the personal drama of those characters. Right. Like that to me was where the strength and of that first season lied. Because it's and people the that states, they know and it's people yeah. that yeah. they go to and school this, with. And because it's people that the filmmakers know, the stakes are extremely high, which you, Elise was about to say and I, stopped, I, I was going to say it too, but you go ahead. Come, explain. Oh, no. No. Sorry. Just steal my points from me. It's fine. But but it is. I mean, it, it makes the stakes higher, and as a result, it makes the jokes funnier. Mm-hmm. Because they do take it so seriously. Yeah. And so, like, when they're talking about, like, oh, well, was this guy getting a hand job at this time? Where was everyone? And they go to the computer model about, like, the guy getting the hand job at summer camp. Yeah. Like, that is one of the funniest things I have ever seen. Yeah. Because it is so taken seriously. And in the minds of the, the fictitious filmmakers, it would be serious. Yeah. And and I agree with you 100% there. That like, uh. And there's nothing in the, in the second season that really kind of captures that same kind of feeling mm-hmm. of like the serious pettiness of high school yeah 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 um which it's like the thing with teenagers is everything when you're interacting with them you have to remind yourself that like everything they're going through is the first yeah, time that it's they're it's literally the worst this. thing that's ever happened to them because it's the first time they've experienced anything like yeah it. like every like the heartbreak is the worst heartbreak that they've ever experienced because it's the first one. But conversely, like the highest highs, you know, they're, they're, they feel such elation because it is like the first time that they've ever like been in love or had a serious friendship or something like that. And I feel like that's what season one like captured so perfectly. And season one, or season two, it, they do like there are moments where they kind of get to that same level, mm-hmm. but never quite the same way. Because well, they're able to keep distance mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. these documentarians using air quotes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was also like the allure of the first season because you're like, when you first sit down to watch it, you're like, is this fake? Is this real? And then like you, kind of I knew it was fake going yeah. into it, but yeah, it's a little bit more. And there, there's a little bit more veracity to mm-hmm. to the first season. Like you can believe yeah. because like like parent like parents are getting mad, the teachers are getting mad at these kids for making this documentary. Yeah. And so like with season two, where it's like Netflix has given us a budget. We went to this other school for our senior yeah. project. It's like, and the entire time I'm just thinking, when are they doing actual schoolwork? Like, are they enrolled yeah. in this other school now? Yeah. Like. What's the deal here? Mm-hmm. It kind of took me out of it a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, well, I do. I do. Again, I, it's, I, yeah. I want to also talk about my grandma's opinions. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I'm always Our interested. silent partner yeah. in the podcast. The fourth, because, the fourth uh, nerd. Because. As we call her as, around the office. As someone who is of a generation removed from us, mm-hmm. who was born when. People Two were dying of polio. Um, 
her opinion of the second season students was that they were more realistic than the first. Really? Yeah. Huh. And I th- I don't know because like she she constantly kept wondering when watching the first season we were watching the first season is like. Hi, student kids don't actually act like this. They right? do though. <laughs> they do. Like that's the thing that makes it so funny mm-hmm. is that like if you interact with teenagers these like like I feel like the teenagers they get teenagers so right mm-hmm. in that first season. And in the second season it's like and maybe it, part of it's because you're going from a public school to a private school. Maybe like that maybe that's yeah. part of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I've never. Yeah. I've never I've attended never been to a private, private school, school, so I can't say. Have you attended private school? No, no. no. Um, but she also did appreciate the amount of time spent with people that weren't the uh, the person that was accused. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like the amount of time spent with Demarcus, for yeah. example. She did appreciate that. She appreciated the the amount of attention that was given to other people's stories too. Yeah. I, and and the fact that it's a more complex story means yes. that there are more people who have these and that things. does make it that does make it way more interesting in some regards. But on the other hand, another thing that I found really strong about season one is um, is the main guy's story arc, like the story arc of the guy Dylan. Who was, Dylan, thank yeah. you. Yeah, the Dylan story arc through season one is fascinating Mm -hmm. and he's like actually a real because you think at the beginning of the first season that he's just going to be this really one note character Mm -hmm. who's just played for a joke but then he becomes like really complex Mm -hmm. like like he's still an idiot by the end but like you really empathize with him right like you understand why he does dumb shit Mm -hmm. and you feel bad for him (laughs) because like everyone else sees him as a joke and he never realized it. Mm -hmm. And that's such a great moment is when he is when he finally understands how his peers actually feel about him. Like you feel it. Yeah. And there's no, again, there's no moment like that in season two. So I'm not, again, because like the, the kid that they follow, the accused kid is, He's not as interesting of a character. One, he's not as interesting as a character. And two, there is never that, like, pull back the veil. Because I yeah. think he he understands that he's bullied. He understands that he's an outsider. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the same realization that Dylan has. Yeah. Where he thinks he's an insider, and then it turns out yeah. that he's not. He's... There's been a lot of discussion on, on the internet about if... Um, can't remember this character's name for the life of me. Uh, is See, on like that's how. Yeah. He's but so if he's on the spectrum, if he's on the autism autism spectrum or not, and people have been kind of saying, no, yes, in his mannerisms. Is it is relevant it, is to it, his character? I don't know, but is are his manner, mannerisms something that he's putting on as yeah. part of a mask, or is that something is that, that a legitimate? Like, is he like is he not neurotypical and that's just him, or is it? Yeah, it, it is. It sounds like from the way that people describe him in the show um, that it's an affect Mm -hmm. because of what happened to him in middle school and like how he was bullied in middle school. Mm -hmm. And he also started off like that's part of his arc, too, is that he started off as a really popular kid that was really kind of on the in crowd or he had like a lot of friends and then an instant like something happens and he starts losing 
more and more of his friends and becoming more inward looking or more introspective. I would make the argument, one, is it relevant to his character? Um, which I don't think it is. Okay. Uh, and two, I, I kind of have, I, I have like some problems that I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't feel comfortable getting into this podcast because I feel like it kind of reveals too much about myself. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I would say that I kind of caution people against sort of Di- like armchair diagnosing. Uh, armchair diagnosing, and and this is the reason why, uh, is because there is a saying in the autism community. If you've met a kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism. Mm -hmm. And the problems that I have with a lot of the ways that people with autism are portrayed in media is it perpetuates this sort of stereotype about what what autism looks like, Mm -hmm. which then feeds in to how people identify or diagnose people with autism. Right. Or misdiagnose. Or misdiagnose. Or you know like women like like women are much like women women are less likely to be diagnosed uh with autism or identified with autism than men um but the numbers aren't as different as popular media might have you believe okay um so that's kind of why I caution people against looking at a collection of behaviors and sort of trying to decide um, based off of a a selection of behaviors that were a decision by filmmakers and saying, oh, they, he must be, he must be autistic or he must have autism. Um, Which I guess is kind of different because I know and I feel like if anybody has actually been listening to this podcast, they'd be like, but Elise... In this other episode, you said Sheldon Cooper definitely has autism. And I'm like, yeah, because you have a wealth of media there to make an argument. And I don't know if eight episodes in a miniseries uh, based off of what we think of as stereotypical autism behaviors. Stereotypical autism behaviors in high school students is not there that that are portrayed in popular media. Do, is not the same as a checklist or uh, like a diagnostic and, checklist right, which, that which is, is developed by and uh, where again, doctors and where again with this series you don't like you were saying with like a wealth of information like e- even if it were if it were an eight episode miniseries where you spent the whole time with that character right that might be, be different enough. but because he is he is kind of a little bit more in the background in this one than Dylan was in the mm-hmm. first season. I feel like, yeah, you don't spend no, any time with it. No, my, ca- my, my caveat to all of this is the same caveat that I kind of have anytime uh, people talk about uh, sort of like armchair diagnoses with autism, which is that if you are somebody on the spectrum and it helps for you to identify with a certain character, by all means, mm-hmm. feel free. But um, don't let don't let portrayals and non-portrayals of people with people on the spectrum in media affect the way that you treat people with autism in real life Mm -hmm. is is my psa 
the more you know tagline. Buy my book. Oh. Buy my book. That comes later, April yeah. 2020. Things are happening. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, any other thing else we want to talk about American Vandal? Uh, I mean, I feel like I've talked more than I've been. <laughs> I don't know. We're kind of at the the one thirty mark. I yeah. feel like this is a good get a place to any to kind of end. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to two heroes tomorrow night with all of you guys. Two years. Two heroes. Oh, two heroes. Two heroes. heroes. Okay. Heroes. Twin snakes. Shut up. Um. <laughs> what a thrill. Not twin snakes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> twin snake eater. Um, yeah, no, I think that'll be good. Um, All right. Oh, so before we sign off, yes, should we tell them the big news, or should we hold it another week? Oh, that big news. Yeah, that big news. Um, yeah, let's let's hold it until things are more official. Okay. Yeah, okay. I want to. I don't want to jinx right. us. News. News is coming. News forthcoming. Big things are coming. Big things. Big things are coming. Medium-sized things <laughs> to a tiny podcast, which <laughs> makes it big. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, uh, next week we will probably be talking about uh, two heroes. I almost said Twin Stakes for, like, for real that time. Uh, we'll talk more in depth about Megalobox. We'll talk more in depth about Megalobox. And I might have something planned more properly. We'll, about we'll something. talk about uh, whether financial domination is good practice or not. Uh, <laughs> until then. All right. I've been Alex. I've been Nick and continue to be Nick. <laughs> I'm Elise. We are still who we are when the mics aren't recording. At least that's what we tell ourselves. Or are we? Oh, <laughs>